This is Gil Manser welcoming you to an entertaining word-by-word conversations with writers broadcast on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. I apologize for my voice, but despite Iceland's welcoming sunshine and numerous hot springs, I returned with a cold. Today's guests are four of the contributors to the brand new Redwood Writers Anthology, Sonoma, Stories of a Region and Its People. Award-winning travel writer Inga Askamit will share how she created her piece about alfresco theatrics, Transcendent Summer Night. Catherine Bramkant will chat about being a poetry judge for the anthology, as well as writing her poetic elegy, Wolf House, Jack London State Historic Park. Roger C. Lubeck will share his story about the seductiveness of dancing, called Crush, and his poem, Valley of the Moon. In addition, Roger has been assigned the task of official question answerer by the anthology's editor, Robert Digitale. I joined the conversation as well by revealing some of the pitfalls of creating historical nonfiction, like my written in Elizabethan English piece, Exploring the Bay of Nova Albion for Captain Francis Drake. Linda Loveland Reed's nonfiction piece, Confessions of a Prune Picker, captured Press Democrat columnist Chris Smith's attention at the Sonoma County Fair, and he wrote, It's a book fair. For the first time, attractions at the county fair include a booth staffed by local authors. Members of Redwood Writers are taking turns at the tables in the EC Craft Building from 11 to 6 p.m. One book they're eager to share is the new anthology, Sonoma, Stories of a Region and Its People. There's good stuff, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. In Confessions of a Prune Picker, daughter of Healdsburg, Linda Loveland Reed, recalls talking taking to the orchards in 1955 to earn enough money to buy that Pendleton skirt in the window of Rosenberg's department store in Santa Rosa. After a hot morning picking prunes, Reed writes, the kids would dart to the Russian River and jump expertly off the Memorial Beach Dam. It was a trick you had to know, she says, or else you could drown. A girl did one day, and we all stood on the beach shaking while they untangled her hair from a pylon and pulled her out. Did we stop playing on the dam? No. We were kids. Ingra, Catherine, Roger, and Linda, I want to welcome you once again to Word by Word. Linda, I'd like you to begin with your reaction to Chris Smith's column. I never jumped. I mean, <laughs> that would be insane. That was crazy. A kids did jump, but it was dangerous. So I just mumbled around about how it was, you know, dumb. How old were you at the time? We were doing the Memorial Beach thing from the time we were about 11 to our teenage years. And Mm -hmm. when we graduated, it was great fun. We loved it down there. They would dam it up, as you know, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of summer. And uh, it was just the beach, us, boys, and Mm -hmm. lots of water. Right, right, right. (laughs) So what you wrote to me is – you didn't want me on. You didn't want to come on the show because you were so dull. Now I was afraid you might not want the uh, non-jumper me. Well. <laughs> so, is would you like to read something from your sure, piece? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I was uh, raised in Hillsburg. I went to grammar school there, mm-hmm. and um, we picked a lot of prunes. We were fortunate to pick prunes for our school clothes, so that's kind of what I wrote about and my memories of Hillsburg. 
So I'll begin with, it was Hillsburg 1955, and I was determined to make enough money to buy that Pendleton skirt in the window of Rosenberg's department store in Santa Rosa. I'd seen it there when Mom went into town last month. My friends all had real Pendletons, not the Montgomery Ward knockoff that I had worn last winter. This year would be different. Did I mind not having as much as some of the girls in our group? I I didn't even realize that our family of six lived in a 900-square-foot home that Dad had enlarged by remodeling the one-car garage into a small TV room. Mom kept a nice home with artistic touches, and I was proud of it. This was the 1950s. Folks didn't expect as much. Families like ours, just moving onto the edges of the middle class, were thrilled with our new Westinghouse fridge sold by Betty Furness on our two-foot black-and-white screen. We were enjoying our piece of the American pie, going on camping trips and barbecuing chicken on the weekends in our grassy backyards. But really, I did want that Pendleton skirt. So I picked prunes, lots of prunes. We trudged our buckets back and forth, filling our boxes and marking our initials on them with chalk, then tallying up our take for the day based on 25 cents a box. My top count was 30 boxes, but my friend Wanda could do 50. By 1 o'clock after finishing our assigned rows, now in the boiling sun, our jeans spotted and sticky with ground-in plum juice, we'd take off for the river. Spend the rest of the day at Memorial Beach tanning our pathetic pre-adult bodies. We'd challenge each other to swim across to the other side or to jump off the bridge, which I never did. The Russian River played huge in our lives. It runs southward from north of Ukiah and empties into the ocean at Jenner. But to us, it existed just two places in Hillsburg, Memorial Beach and around Fitch Mountain. Often we'd hike around the mountain to a swimming hole called Palomar or sometimes to Camp Rose. We'd play cards all day with the cute boys from the city, showing our sleek tan bodies while jumping off the dam into churning water that would suck us under and toss us out downstream. It was a trick you had to know or else you could drown. A girl did one day, and we all stood on the beach shaking while they untangled her hair from the pylon and pulled her out. Did we stop playing on the dam? No. We were kids. All right. Thank you. I think that piece kind of gives an idea about how uh, important Sonoma is to this anthology. And, Roger, you did the la- edited the last anthology. That's right. And you know the process of how we decided or the group decided that they wanted to focus on Sonoma than this one. So tell us about that. Well, about a year and a half ago, the board of directors met in their annual um, strategy meeting. We have a planning session where we talk about the next year. And at that meeting, Linda and a number of us were there, and we talked about we have an anthology each year, which is written by club members. And it has a different theme each year. Uh, and we, we thought that um, the book is intended really first and foremost for the club, but we definitely want it to be purchased by everyone that loves her to read. And um, in talking about a new theme, someone just suggested, well, why don't we write stories about Sonoma that people have not heard yet? Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, that's a very good idea. I mean, we hadn't really written uh, an exclusively nonfiction book. Most books are fiction, memoir, and poetry. And in this case, we thought, well, 
if we can, why not have an entire book that is really a nonfiction collection of stories that hadn't been told yet? And from that, uh, we were fortunate to get Robert Digitale to be our editor-in-chief. Uh, and his background was, of course, natural, being a, a newspaper person and, and uh, a nonfiction person editor. Um, and so we suggested that theme to the membership. Uh, we had finally um, oh, some uh, hundred submissions. The book contains today uh, 25 nonfiction stories that are quite unique stories like Linda's. Mm-hmm. And then a, a small collection of fiction all focused on Sonoma though and, and poetry that is exclusively about Sonoma. So in each case – what we required our members to do is to give us a story in which it might be a personal story or a complete fiction, but it has to focus on our experience in the county, and it's the county, not the city alone. And uh, and I think it's probably our, you know, they're all great collections, but even though I was the editor in the last years, this is a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Well, that asks the question, you know, the the title Sonoma. There's always this confusion between city and county. So why not Sonoma County? Well, we debated that. We we looked at a dozen different variations on the title. But uh, we we thought that in conveying the the complete title, Sonoma, Stories of a Region and Its People, we're really conveying that it's not the city alone. Mm -hmm. But at the fair this week, when people see the new book, they immediately go, well, I don't live in Sonoma. And, and we go, well, do you live in the county? <laughs> and they do. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it was uh, – there are other books, as you know, that, that highlight aspects of the county and um, travel stories in the county and histories of the county. But these are unique, somewhat personal, mm-hmm. but also stories about people in the county that are – might be famous or near famous, but – Perhaps you don't know their whole story. Um, and I, I think that's what makes the collection really a, a winner from my point of view. It's a great read. Um, and I assure people that even the poetry, if you're not a poet, will probably uh, bring something to your eye or to your emotions because they're wonderful poems. Well, that's a perfect segue because <laughs> I notice you've got your poem all ready to read. Here. I do, actually. Could you share that with us? Sure. Uh, this is called Valley of the Moon, and, and I will say I am a fiction writer and not a poet. Uh, I'm always pleased if I actually get something accepted because I don't expect it to be. But Valley of the Moon. Valley of the Moon, your patchwork hills and fertile valleys, summer's dry and brown, winter's wet and verdant. Your mountains and dark forests offer solitude. Your ocean coast and grasslands, home to Miwok and Pomo, living on acorns and corn and elk and fish, and life altered by priests and explorers, trappers and 49ers. How many flags, Spanish, English, Russian, Italian, Swiss, miners and schemers, planters and dreamers, all staked a claim, building forts, colonies, and farms. Riches from the deep within earth's faults, gold and silver, mercury and sulfur, steam to power a city. Milk and cheese, plum and citrus, apples, and always grapes. Stagecoach robbers, movie makers, citrus fairs and millionaires. Russian River carves the valley, parcels land for 
cities, businesses, and homes. Tosonoma, Earth Village, your rivers bring life and renewal. Petaluma slogs through tidal marshes. Bodega and tamales channel wind and fog. Hot springs and dry creeks, oak and laurel, madrone and Douglas fir, shadowed by eucalyptus and pines, ancient citadels, Sonoma's gateway to the redwoods. Mm. Well, that took us all over the county. It did, and that was my intention. I wanted to. I actually went on to Wikipedia, and ah. uh, I Wikipedia Sonoma County, and it listed all of the features and the history of the county. And I thought, well, you know, I I probably I'd like to have a poem in the in the anthology, but I thought a poem that really just talked about aspects of it, not so much the emotions that it elicits, but aspects of the county and in some sense they 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 flow in a way I think about the county and I I thought it was a nice way of for me characterizing what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Catherine, you were the one of the poetry judges. I or, was. Or whatever they call it. Is whatever, that right? We called it judges so Roger Digitale could just throw us under the bus. So okay. That was fine. Yeah, he, used, he was the wine. Yeah. I get Well, that. they said, yes. Um, yes, and I think that one thing that I liked about um, Roger's poem, and I didn't know it was his at the time. They were blind entries. They're all blind entries, yes. And it was, I think there was a feature of it listing everything within the county that was appealing because we were going for a more commercial, a more um, outward, uh, what do I want to say, a popular book rather than an insider work. So that we wanted to explain and highlight what was going on in Sonoma County. So a visitor would pick up this book and say, oh, I've never gone to the coast or I didn't realize I needed a sweater to go to Jenner or you know, whatever information that we want to convey. We wanted to you know, add to their experience. Right. Yeah. So that was very much what we were looking for when we were judging. So when the – how many uh, poems did you get to work from? I think we got – I'm going to say like 70. Mm-hmm. I think about 70, and we winnowed, We needed to winnow it down. But they, they really had to grab us. And so we, uh. most of us, there were three judges, um, two, two, myself and another judge, and then, uh, and then um, Robert Digitale was the tiebreaker. Right. But for the most part, we agreed. So you know, we were trying for quality. We were trying for rhythm. We were trying for sense of place. And that was probably our uh. biggest focus when we were judging was did the sense of place get conveyed? Yeah, through the work. So I have a question because it, it always seems to me that poems often have the wrong title. <laughs> no, I don't know if other people feel this way, but you know, there'll be a wonderful line two thirds of the way through that would be a wonderful mm-hmm. title, and they don't see it because they're too close to it. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I, th- I think. Well, I think it's true of all forms of writing, not mm-hmm. just poetry. So, if you look at the short story collections or a novel. Um, the title is important in all writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think as an editor, one of the jobs I have is to say, I love this story. I love this poem. But just as you said, I don't think the title captures it. It doesn't convey what this is about or it it's not catchy. I mean, yeah. after all, sometimes they need to market and they need to really uh, draw an audience in. And, and um, the poetry titles, I, I, I never thought about – where they come from and when. I mean, for me, when I write, for example, I often um, will know what the title of a chapter will be as I start it. Mm-hmm. 
but I often don't have the title for a book yet, but I know the chapter titles because uh, it's obvious what you're writing. And I think in a poem that what you just said is um, look at the whole thing before you name it, if you will, and look at what the strongest lines are, what, what images will convey something to an audience, and that might be the right title because mm-hmm. I do think sometimes they're a bit um, static. They're... they're um, Maybe commonplace would be another word. They're mm-hmm. they're just not uh, evocative enough yeah. of what the poem yeah. is or the story. Right. Well, I think that oftentimes for and I can speak for poets. And when I was the editor for and the beat goes on, our first anthology mm-hmm. of poetry, oftentimes the poet and the writer and the short story writer can't see where that grabby title is that's right. just, that's just not how they're they're not wired that way essentially because they're in the weeds they and and it's an editor's job to go back and say hey this rocks right here on line 12 and they'll say what <laughs> so, yeah, so you need to have that's the advantage of having readers it's, it's it's advantage of belonging to a group like redwood writers it's an advantage of having a critique group or a writing coach so that, so that then the writing coach can say wow right here is amazing you need to pull this out and i have clients who just look at me their eyes are enormous I'm like i hadn't thought about that i said i know that's why i'm here <laughs> So, yes, to your point, yes. Well, this is a perfect time to talk about the new poetry anthology, too, which is going to be out. It'll be out in 2018. 2018. Yeah. So that's in the works right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's We're accepting submissions through October, middle of October. And do they so, need to be a Redwood member or just a um, – they do need to be a Redwood member. So another reason to be a Redwood another reason. Member. To, it's yeah. one of the reasons to be a member is that every year there's one or more anthologies in which you can be you can submit and participate. Right. Fran Claggett is yes. going to be the editor oh, along with Les Bernstein. She was the editor. Well, Catherine Brandcamp was our first editor of our poetry. So we right. do a poetry now every other. Um, year. And um, and then Fran Claggett was our, our editor last year, and then she's going to be the editor for this book along co-editing mm-hmm. with someone else. With We've had Fran person. as a guest on Word by Word, and she was delightful. Yeah, yeah, she's Wonderful delightful. Poet. And she is a consummate uh, poet. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're very fortunate and very excited about it. Great. This year, additionally, which is important, I think, for are poets because they're, they're a smaller number, but they're a very vocal number uh, of members. Um, is that we well, are ex- Juanita helps with yeah, that. <laughs> we are accepting more submissions than we normally do, and so the poets can submit up to five uh, poems, and that's and also Fran has not prescribed the length of the poems, mm. and normally we're we're very much about maybe it's only two and they can only be twenty five lines. So this allows uh, some poets to really expand into um, a different dimension in terms of writing perhaps a longer poem. And uh, that's a, kind of an exciting new feature of this coming anthology, I think. So when we get one like Rhyme of the Ancient White Well, it won't be that long and it won't be Howl, but it, 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 it certainly allows that – I mean the fact is that if it's under a certain 
page or a certain number of lines. It fits on a page. Yeah. <laughs> so as an editor, it's that's great. Print. But I, I did want to emphasize that, uh, and I think we've we've talked about it here a little bit. But this is a huge perk f- for being a Redwood Writer member because only members can have their work put in the book, and it makes them published. And mm-hmm. so it really feels good, and it's a great start for a lot of um, a lot of authors. Yes, yeah, it's been a start for several of our our you know writers who've gone on to do their own books and things. It's been great. Yeah. All right. We're going inst- to, we could have a poem here, but I'm going to break this up just a little bit. And we're going to go shift over to Inca, who has written a story set in the very s- bright sun originally when it opens up, but then the stars come out. So why don't you uh, tell us about where this idea came from and how yes. you ended up over in Jack London State Park? Yes. So um, several years ago, um, the Transcendence Theater Company started doing shows uh, called Broadway Under the Stars in the old winery ruins of the Jack London State Historic Park. And um, it is quite warm uh, many of the summer evenings when the show starts. But then during the first act, the sun is sliding behind Sonoma Mountain. It creates just a magical lighting situation and um, the shadows deepen, and then for the second act, it's dark. And for me, that really makes um, the two the two acts very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, has a very different uh, feel to it. So when I went the first time, I didn't expect much. Um, the stage was very basic. Um, they were bare bones at the time, and I was just transformed. It, it has completely changed my life. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. It has because I we we went I went with my husband and we didn't know m- many people. We had just moved to Sonoma. This was a way for us to uh, meet some new people and get involved. So we started volunteering at the park, and then we realized we could volunteer at Transcendence um, for all of the shows, and we started doing it at a very low level. And now um, we go to almost all of the shows all summer long. I've gotten to know some of the performers, and it's opened up a whole avenue for me into a, a much more creative aspect of life that I hadn't really participated in before. I myself have very little uh, talent in the <laughs> song and dance arena, and I've never known performers uh, at this level. These are people that come from Broadway, and um, I think the intimacy of the setting and the access to the performers are two of the aspects that make it very, very different and very special. Great. Can you share some of um, your writing? Yes, I'd be happy to. A slim woman with short, curly, honey-brown hair bounded onto the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our field of dreams. Amy Miller exuded strength, confidence, and most of all, pizzazz, that indescribable secret sauce you either have or you don't. From that moment on, my cares slipped away. The heat, the sun, the glare, all vanished in a whirling cacophony of song and dance from the members of the Transcendence Theater Company. The notes drifted across the green, leafy vineyards, rolling over the golden hills as they chased the waning light. The soft thud of muscular bodies touched down ever so briefly on their trajectory across the stage, transporting me far, far away. The sun finally slid behind Sonoma Mountain, backlighting the stone walls of the ruins that cradled the spectators in an intimate embrace. The ramparts, softened by the hair-like fringe of parched blades of grass, 
whose seeds had found purchase in the crest of the rock, glowed with an inner force, the roof and upper stories long gone. Under the expansive canopy of moon and stars, joy burst forth from the remains of this former winery. Just hours before, the skeleton of the building had stood bleak and abandoned. Not since Jack London days in the early 1900s had this site seen so much vitality and joy. The music swelled against the firm walls as it channeled the exuberance of one of America's great adventurers, a man who lived life fully. He would have seen the same sky from his window. Perhaps he penned these words to capture a moment such as this when he wrote, The grapes on a score of rolling hills are red with autumn flame. Across Sonoma Mountain, wisps of sea fog are stealing. The afternoon sun smolders in the drowsy sky. I have everything to make me glad I am alive. I am filled with dreams and mysteries. I am all sun and air and sparkle. I am vitalized, organic. Thank you. We're going to hear that quote again at the end of the show, by the way. I liked it so much. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with the Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's entertaining conversation is with several of the writers who have pieces in the newly released Redwood Writer Anthology, Sonoma, Stories of a Region and Its People, edited by Robert Digitale. My guests include Roger Lobeck. Hello. Linda loveland Yes. Catherine Brandkamp. Here. <laughs> and Inga Axelman. Hello. Okay. Stay tuned to hear more of the engaging behind-the-scenes secrets of people caught, you know, in the middle of the, the headlights and making a really good anthology. Okay. So I have a couple of, of uh, opportunities here to uh, do something. I was fortunate enough to have one of my stories selected. Robert actually called me up when you were stir- first getting mm-hmm. and weren't getting submissions. Yes, that's right. And he said, Gil, can you put something together? And uh, – I said, well, sure. I mean, you know, what's it going to be? So many hours, right? Unfortunately, I made the mistake of deciding that I would write a historic piece. Right. And I remembered when I was uh, was courting my wife-to-be in Mill Valley, they had just discovered this plaque that uh, Sir Francis Drake had supposedly left behind mm-hmm. out at Point Reyes, you know, it was, which may or may not be true. Apparently, somebody made it more recently. Than then. And uh, I realized, so I started looking, what do we know? Because there's this debate. Uh, did he land in, down in Point Reyes or was it Bodega Bay or was it perhaps up in, in uh, Trinidad? There's all kinds of parts right. along the coast right. that want right. to figure out which one it is. I said, well, I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to discover in some archive a handwritten note of someone who was on that voyage. And um, so that's basically – what I used as my idea, and I came up with my piece, which I'm going to have to find here in just a second. The fog lifts as we sailed past the point and arrive at our destination with the bay bathed in welcome sunshine. The people of the country run to our craft with the woman making the now familiar bird calls of joyful welcome. This time, Acha wears a woven shoulder vest and a cap adorned with shells and colorful feathers. Yamata has a decorated cloth covering her shoulders and has stuck long wing feathers in her hair like hat pins. We tell Acha what we seek 
and display our trading goods of colorful cloth, iron needles, mirrors, and glass beads. Imata carefully examines each bolt of cloth and holds the beads up to the light. With her approval, the natives lead us to a store of pine boughs, covering baskets filled with moist seaweed, protecting oysters and clams, as well as two dozen unfamiliar sea creatures with a single shell the size of a dinner plate. The doctor is very interested in these creatures and draws them in his sketchbook. Attracting an admiring crowd, he gently engenders the natives' trust by drawing Imata and her three children. Acha and two natives pick up short bows and quivers of arrows and invite me to join them on their hunt. Compared to an English longbow, the weapon looks like toys for children, but I soon learn to appreciate the skill of the hunters as they find and track their quarry, silently surround the deer, and simultaneously fire their arrows. Acha draws a shiny black knife from a pouch on his fawn-skin quiver and makes quick work cutting and dressing the carcass while saving the hide in one piece. I could not do better with a blade of Sheffield steel, and I make a gesture, indicating I would like to examine his knife. Hesitant at first, he kneels down and repeatedly jabs the blood-covered implement into the earth. Standing tall, he turns to where the sun shines through the tree branches, lifts the blade high above him, and makes a shrill sound, much like a barn owl at dusk. Then he turns in the direction we arrived, lifts the blade, and once again makes the bird cry. Only after this ritual is complete does he allow me to hold the surprisingly lightweight and very, very sharp blade. It glistens in the sunlight like a rock crystal jewel. Shaha, he says to me, and I repeat the identifying word back, Shaha. The nod he makes would be labeled polite in England, but the respect and care I use when returning the exceptional Shaha is honest and true. Now, there's interesting, the word, it's obsidian, obviously, but what word do you use? You mentioned earlier that the Miwok and the Pomo, you know, were living here. So I made the tremendously important archaeological decision to use a Pomo word. Great. Yep. So, but that's the little kinds of things that you don't know when you start doing historical. That's right. It's hard. It's hard to decide. I mean, if you write a historical novel and then people talk in 20th century slang, right? There tends to be a problem with that. Well, but, I find. But that many problem. authors fall right into that trap. They, I mean, it is difficult to write in a in an era. I mean, when you read about other writers like Elmore Leonard, who wrote mm-hmm. some of the best westerns that have ever been written, he made a collection of over 300 western phrases and a little checklist in front of him. And as he wrote, he would simply work through those phrases because that would be that would bring the genuineness to the story, and it, and it allowed him to make a historical novel sound right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's a skill or a craft that not everyone uh, knows at first. Um, one of the things that I discovered when I wrote, wrote my first book, which was an historical fiction, mm-hmm. um, was that writing uh, way back when 
uh, is filled with more natural drama. Just getting around and going from one town to the next mm. can create drama. Today, one of the problems the writers have, and we have to constantly be thinking about this, is do we want cell phones there? Uh. Because if you have this constant, ready communication, then it's very hard to be in danger for very long. <laughs> Which is why Kinsey Milhone is set in the 80s in Santa Barbara, or not Santa Barbara, yeah. Santa, wherever. Santa Barbara. Yeah. yeah, it's Santa Barbara. <laughs> Santa we all Barbara. know that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's something we all have to think about. Sure. Technology. Yeah, that's right. I, I have a series uh, with a character that starts in the uh, late 60s and moves into the 80s over four books. And it was the same problem. I found myself writing. You know, he checked his cell phone, and then I'd have gone, oh, well, no, mm-hmm. I didn't do that. I mean, growing up in the 70s, it was easy to understand what the 70s are about. So that wasn't that hard as a writer. I think if you write in your own history, you can do that. But when you go 100 years back or 300 years back, that's right. um, a whole different story. You know, it's. I mean, in my newest novel, it begins with prehistoric people in Utah, the Fairmont culture or Fremont culture. Well, no one knows what they were like at all except what's left. So, I mean, you have to figure out as an author how am I going to convey this story of a people that, you know, wouldn't be speaking and using any of the words that we're familiar with. And that's a very tough decision about what your words to use and not as you write in those kind of histories. Mm-hmm. I think, too, um, there was a a phase, and there was about three or four female uh, female writers who were very, very popular about the same time that Mark Twain was very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Franny Fern, yeah, you know, people like that, right? And they, those writers, really wanted to capture the vernacular at the time, and it was Northern New York State is what where they were coming from. And the challenge was that even though they captured the vernacular and preserved it. That the books did not last because people lost the ability to understand the vernacular that they were writing in. And you have somebody like Mark Twain who balanced it better so that you have most of the narrative voices in standard English, so to speak, and then some dialogue, but not all dialogue. And so that's something that some early, you know, as you guys pointed out, you have younger authors, or you're just starting out with a book, and you want to capture all this color, and you want to capture all this vernacular, but you run the risk of having something that's not readable, in in even in five years. And I think that that's true for slang, and for technology. So you need to, you know, maybe it's a, you know, unless you really want to nail it, like you know, all of the, um, all of the girl with the dragon tattoo books are very of their time. So there's a lot of products named. And she's doing things with certain computers. And so it's that, you know, it's a little time capsule. But if you want your story that's a broader appeal, you need to say, okay, they have a phone, but don't get granular about the phone because then that dates the work. Unless so. you are, you know, the James Bond kind of thing. Right. You look at the, you know, the original movies. I'm talking the first four. Mm-hmm. Let me go over to the other ones. And you realize how tied to the technology. The, pl- the, the plots were about the technology. They were all about the technology. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Ian Fleming made sure that he used the right gun, you know, specifically said this, the right telephone, mm-hmm. the right automobile. You know, even though the Aston Martin was built for the movie, he based it on a previous No, model. you know, that uh, that's ironic you say that. I We just had a fan fiction contest, uh-huh. which I didn't win. It's disappointing. Uh, but the fan fiction I wrote was a new James Bond. Mm. But it was a James Bond 
it's an up-to-date Giants bond, but being a bond fan, I went back and I looked at all of the features of the first books, of his books, Fleming's books, because there's 28 after him. Uh, but in those books, he had certain things like Bond wore sea breeze underwear. He smoked gold yes. Dunhills. Yes, he did. He so, I mean, in capturing as fan fiction, you have to really mirror exactly what that original author or story, that hero, whatever, uh, represents. But in the Bonds, I think that's one of the things that the newer writers tried to go away from what Fleming had used. Mm-hmm. They no longer sit, smoke 60 cigarettes a day, for example. Probably well, a good apparently idea. Bond died Probably a good idea. Bond yes, that's right. right. Exactly. So. But, I mean, I think that's right is that, mm-hmm. that you know, sometimes you, you really have to immerse yourself in, you know, what was – what was used at the time, but you do run that risk. If you name products mm-hmm. and things that date it, the the story may be unreadable or unsellable after a very short period of time. Uh, probably the bonds are one of the exceptions to mm-hmm. that rule. Yeah. I think, because uh, you mentioned um, Sue Grafton, so my favorite quote from her is, um, who knew the alphabet was that long? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was a little startling for her. You know, she's on D. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a really, yeah. really long series. Where is she now, really? <laughs> um, I just ordered X. It's Y. 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 Whoa. So she's on Y, and it'll be released. Is I she think, still wear fall. the same black dress and, and cut her hair with, with yeah. scissors? Yes. So what I find there's there's moments where you can tell that Grafton is getting frustrated because she's back in she's still in '86 in Santa Barbara, and it's now 2013. And how do you you know how do you stay there in the '80s in a comfortable way? So I just she had two books that were pretty awkward. And you can see, you could feel the tension from the author. It was really interesting. And then she must have had an epiphany or a child pointed out something to her because children are good for that. And she decided to just go completely retro. And so she allowed Kinsey to make comments like, there is no way all this paperwork is going on a computer. You know, there's no way I'm ever going to have a computer in my office. And so she just embraced kind of the anti-technology that was expressed often enough during the 80s, and, and it went smoother. And then she also said a whole lot of things way back in the 50s and went, and went in that direction, too. But it's an interesting series to watch because of that limitation. Mm-hmm. And she made the decision to just do one book after the next after the next, and the technology outstripped right. the initial the Well, initial she's stories. also coming at it as, as a TV writer, scriptwriter. So she was, and she was told, you know, you need to include certain product placements mm-hmm. in them. So she was... So she was good she at was that, good too. At that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. when you're writing travel pieces, Inga, do you consider the well, – what do you consider the audience, the um, who you're writing it for, how you – what kind of where – where are they placed? In magazines primarily? Um, yes. Well, I've, I've had some placed in magazines and these days I'm doing a lot more outdoor writing. Outdoor um, writing. Yeah. Any you go outdoors and write like a plein air? Writing about my sure. outdoor adventures. Oh, okay. Um, and so it, it's a sub-genre of travel writing. Um, and so I find when I'm writing about um, the John Muir Trail, for example, which I hiked in 2014, mm-hmm. I, I do need I, I struggled a lot with who the audience was, and I finally decided that it needed to be somebody fairly similar to me because that's who I know. And so, for example, that means it's a, a female person hiking the trail, not a 20-year-old 
young man. But so f- um, hopefully someone who at least packed her pack professionally, <laughs> unlike Cheryl Strayer. <laughs> right. Correct. Um, I had a very different trajectory yes. before I um, embarked on long-distance hiking, and okay. so um, so mine was much more gradual. And so I've actually been surprised that so many men have um, have have reacted positively to my book because I finally had to just accept that um, no book can uh, appeal to every person. And so I had to be true to myself and um, and write it for people who are similar to me and maybe would experience some of the same challenges I mm-hmm. did. So you really said in this time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, right now. Mm-hmm. Would yes. you do a historical uh, travel piece? Uh, um, I mean, imagine hiking the trail in 1940. No, I keep it in the current moment. Mm-hmm. You could have those old canvas things. <laughs> Remember them? No. Oh, the canvas. The can. I've seen those in canvas yeah. tents. I've seen stuff. those. Yeah. I think when, my husband uh, has when, one. Aren't they still in fashion? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah John Muir. Yeah, you mean the right. actual John Muir? <laughs> we went to John. an outdoor museum in uh, Iceland, and they had moved the um, basically a lots of the buildings that, that were going to be torn down. Reykjavik, they put out mm-hmm. side of the city. Now the city's grown around the park. And one of them was the old Boy Scout cabin, which had, you know, been in the middle of the woods. And I walked in, and they had all these canvas. And I could immediately remember that smell, you know, from the World War II kind of uh, yeah, stuff. Yeah, rucksacks. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah we word. did the tour of Mont Blanc last year, and uh-huh. we, oh, uh, wow. we had a rest day in Cormier, and they had a wonderful small museum of some of the early mountaineers that pioneered right. some of the techniques that, you know, that that uh, opened up mountaineering as a sport, and it's just amazing to me of what they were able to accomplish with such rudimentary fabrics and all the fancy gear that we have no now. Gore-Tex. With Gore-Tex yeah. and uh, ultralight materials. And so my pack only weighed um, about 25 pounds on the, on the John Muir Trail Whoa. for three weeks wow. on the trail. That's well-packed. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very good. good. Not a lot of costume changes? <laughs> no. <laughs> you did not bring that cast iron frying pan. For I the did fish, not. Right? But on my first trip, I brought a lightweight frying pan for one and, one and only one trip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, stick it on a stick. Okay. I, I have to say, I hiked in New Zealand, and, you know, they hike from um, huts to huts, which are all like a three quarter day hike apart. Mm-hmm. And um, you found people two days in on a nine-day hike, and they were carrying bags of groceries. <laughs> so, I mean, you, in the grocery bag in from grocery the store, bags, in, in brown paper grocery bags. And so, here's Americans. We had these full modern packs and right. sleeping bags. And somebody said, "What is that?" And I said, "Well, it's a sleeping bag." And he said, "Why would you need that? We have huts." <laughs> That's true because no yeah. one, you know, yeah. and no one had a tent. We had a tent; they didn't know what it was. You know, I, I would do that hike from four seasons to four seasons to four seasons. <laughs> I think that would be more where I'd oh. come from on that. Well, you, you would endure my I, designer I, purse and go from. I bet you meant times of year for a minute there, but <laughs> I got it. Yeah. She should have said another brand. Yeah, I'm sorry, she said another brand. Hyatt to Hyatt. Yeah. To Hyatt. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, Roger, for yeah. the next anthology. Yes. Are they thinking about it already? Uh, we have a planning session coming up this month. And oh. so the, the theme, we are looking for an editor. So if someone's out there that wants to be an editor, Roger, uh, a job I is mean, there. Robert doesn't want to do this again. We, we have a new editor each time. Oh, okay. So every year is a new editor. Um, we have a team of, of 
what we call associate editors, who are the people that edit each of the stories, and then the proofreading team. Mm-hmm. And those folks often are the same folks. Uh, Catherine's been an editor chief, and she's probably been an editor in almost everything, mm-hmm. uh, as has Linda and I, and 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 others. Uh, but each year we want an editor in chief who manages the book, and that person has not been um, selected or agreed to it yet. Uh, and nor has the theme. And the theme is usually left to that editor. So the board sometimes might suggest something, an idea, but it is really up to the person that will manage the book that year. Mm. And um, so that's why we've had very different themes across the anthologies. Um, But this year probably encourages us to think a bit out of the box in Mm -hmm. terms of what we might do. We've never done, for example, I'm not suggesting we will, but other branches have done, and well, they've done books that were, for example, only sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Or so they'd pick a genre, and that, right. that's what they do that year. Um, that's a bit limiting for a club that has 350 members. Mm-hmm. Which we, is the we, largest. We're the largest the club, and, and, club. And we want to serve all our members. So um, constraining it, I mean, when we had a contest on steampunk, it took about 12 meetings before we could explain what that meant. Um, and then we, yeah. didn't, we didn't get as many submissions as you might guess. Uh, so, but we all dressed up. But we all dressed up as steampunk. Yes, that's true. So the, With the, leather the, and spikes. Oh, and the, the, the photos were great. The, the point is we want, we want to have a theme that is certainly evocative and provocative, that it's something that was, would ah. prompt you, would stimulate a writer into something unwritten. So last year was called Untold Stories. The idea was tell us something you've never told anyone or you've never written before. And I think that idea of um, not trying to make it specific like everybody has to start with or a cold and rainy night because uh, that's another way that's to start writing. Yeah, yes. another, <laughs> but, but we certainly want to have a, a book that uh, our readers will be enticed just by the theme and yet the writers will find that challenging. Mm-hmm. That's what's important, I think. Yeah, I agree. When we did our first, when we looked at the poetry anthology, and I th- I was trying to come up with something that I- exactly what you said. So what can we come up with that will be ins- inspirational, but not necessarily something that people will need to copy, you know, quote, unquote. So that's why we came up with the, and the beats go on. And we encourage people to look at Ginsburg, not in length, but <laughs> to look at Kerouac and, and, and look at those authors and then use that as a jumping off point. At the same time, we always have to have the caveat, if this is not floating your boat, then send us your stuff anyway, because we want a range and we want opportunity. So we don't, I, I agree, I, I didn't want to close off anybody or discourage anyone because I wanted that, the point is to be inclusive so that we can publish people who have been working and laboring on their on their art forever. And this, within the group, within the club, is a, is a way for them to finally get some recognition and say, I'm published. And that's a lot about what we're all about. And that is why I'm the voice for no theme. <laughs> no theme. No theme. Because uh, what 
what Catherine did was fine. She had the beats, and that was very open. Really, basically, people could send in yeah. anything they wanted to. This year with Sonoma, it was great. Something special, something we decided to do. Um, but, you, of course, you get you get fewer submissions, so fewer really? of your members are mm-hmm. published. Yes, because a lot of people don't have a story about Sonoma. and so. But that was fine. We knew that going in, and it was okay. But I like, I like a, th- a book where it has a theme, which is nice, but sort of universal. So it's interesting, but universal. Kind of yeah. like Stolen Light. Yeah. Well, we had water one year. Water. Yeah. Right. Water. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty open. Right. <laughs> open water. Oh, dear. Um, going forward. Now, what I want to talk about, something entirely different this year, which we refer to in, in Chris Smith's column, is being at the fair. Now, usually when we go out and do our anthology launches, we're talking to people in the club or right. other clubs. Right. But this was this was thrown to the wolves kind of thing. So how who who, who did that? Everybody? Well, the, the, the yeah, sorry, go the, ahead. Um, the idea of going to the fair was um, tossed around for a couple of years on the board. And um, but this year it was Sandy Baker and Jean Jeannie Sloan mm-hmm. who went down to the fair and hammered it out. And really got it solid and brought it back to us and we're going like, oh my gosh, are we really going to do this? Mm-hmm. Because the commitment is humongous. I mean, we have to have made that a success because otherwise there we are for the whole world to see failing. <laughs> lonely. <laughs> lonely. Lonely. Lonely and failing. <laughs> so Sandy did a wonderful job. We The, the Redwood writers really respond beautifully. Uh, people signed up to come on down and sell their own books there, but also to promote the anthologies, to give readings, uh, to give advice about um, about how to write. And it's been a big success. And uh, I was there, I'm there three days this week, but Roger's been there a lot. It has been fun. It has Good. been. It's, it's surprising because, I mean, we meet every month. There's 75 to 100 members that come to our, our, our meeting, which is the second Sunday of every month, except May, where it's the third Sunday. Uh, and and yet, um, I met writers I have never met that are club members, mm-hmm. but are authors and came to sell books and promote the club. Um, we, had, we had more time to talk among ourselves. We had some downtime. There weren't always mm-hmm. crowds, but... On senior day, the whole building, that's the building with the art in it. Yes. And the whole building was packed the entire day. Uh, But I think whether it's a big crowd or a small crowd, our authors have sold books. They've talked to readers. uh, We've made contacts with ourselves. We have a a reading that happens by by a member every half hour. Mm -hmm. And we've been now giving away a book to someone who's in the audience at a reading and you know, a giveaway as a draw. Uh, but that's really been a nice way to promote what we're doing. Uh, the authors have given their own books. Our collections have been given away a bit. Also, they've been selling. But I think the main thing is um, people don't know about our club, and we want readers to know so they can buy our books, if you will. But we also want to encourage people who want to write. So every person we met, we hand them a uh, uh, bookmark, mm-hmm. and we say, "Are you a reader?" Sure, we'll look at our books, and then we say, "But are you a writer?" And oftentimes they say, "Well, I've thought about it. I, I'd like to write my memoir, or 
I used to write. And that's a springboard for us to say, well, we're the largest club. We're a great club. We offer tremendous opportunities for writers. So the fair has been a, a new way of, of exposing us to the public right. uh, besides our presence in, in bookstores and so on. But it's been a really nice, surprising um, time. I think everyone's actually enjoyed the experience of being there. Yes. Okay. I have to have Catherine read for sure. Your poem. My poem. We've been looking forward to this. <laughs> well, I think it's fun that we talked about Jack London Park you know, at, on, on the show here and, and in the book because it is – Jack London is an integral part of the Sonoma County experience. And um, I know that because I got a master's in creative writing at Sonoma State and you have to talk about Jack London when you do that. <laughs> so uh, mine, my, uh, the poem is uh, clunkily titled uh, Wolf House, Jack London State Historic Park only to make sure we got the – you know, we got the place. <laughs> we got the place. The Walk to Broken Dreams is short. The moral of a vigorous story, if you are a meteor, years of work can burn overnight. Two years after the fire, Jack wrote a new novel, 1,000 words at a time, sketching out life in Wolf House. The hero, healthy, handsome, vigorous. The heroine, the little lady, lovely, devoted, thinking of the hero every Golden Valley hour. Yet distracted in another warm minute, In this new version, it is not the glorious house, the bespoke house, named for Alaska and youth. It is the lady, who in the end is not as easily shaped by architects. Something had to be destroyed. Someone had to go. You can't write a novel without guns. His wife, lovely, devoted, distracted by him every goddamn hour. Did she just ignore the new story, leave it to gather moss, Carpets of grass, unreachable fireplaces, perched sewed high, no one is warmed. Did he ask her, type this out, examine the syntax, edit her own death? You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's entertaining conversation was with Roger Lebeck, Linda Loveland-Reed, Catherine Bramkamp, and Inga Aksumit talented writers who have pieces in the newly released Redwood Writer Anthology, Sonoma, Stories of a Region and Its People, edited by Robert Digitale. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast is Anthony Garcia. Station manager is Sean Knight. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell. Our radio coordinator is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for the next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday, September 10th. Until then, enjoy the joyfulness of summer in Sonoma County and consider once again Jack London's poetic words. The grapes on a score of rolling hills are red with autumn flame. Across Sonoma Mountain, wisps of sea fog are stealing. The afternoon sun smolders in the drowsy sky. I have everything to make me glad I'm alive. I'm filled with dreams and mysteries. I'm all sun and air and sparkle. I'm vitalized, organic. Mm -hmm.